Hey, welcome to another podcast. Today I'm talking to Flo Schneider. And during my hiatus from podcasting, I actually listened to a ton of Flo's podcast, which I've always been pronouncing Kino Talk, but actually I think I might have been pronouncing it wrong. It's K-Y-N-O Talk. And uh, yeah, just a fantastic podcast. Flo is a detection dog trainer. We're going to get into it. We're going to explain a hell of a lot more, but fantastic detection trainer and really interesting uh, podcast that he has kind of interviewing people from that world, uh, which is just a fantastic niche. And it's just really, really interesting. Um, so the other thing I want to remind you of before we get started is I have a puppy selection and training webinar coming up on August the 9th. This is the last time I'm going to tell you about this. Uh, this is really your last opportunity to get signed up uh, before we get started. So I will put a link in the description. I'll you can also find it on my uh, social media, but I'm going to be talking about puppy selection and training. So where to get your puppy from, and then also how to train them, how to make sure that you don't make uh, a bunch of really common mistakes. Um, much of that comes from my experience with, with Onyx more recently, but also just having been a pet dog trainer for a very long time and having seen probably thousands of puppies, uh, both through puppy classes and one-to-one -one training. So I'm going to be sharing that experience with you and making sure that you, you get it right, or you can help guide your clients to get it right. So I hope you can join me for the webinar. We'll be doing some Q and A for that as well. Um, which I'm happy to talk about anything, to be honest. Once I've done my presentation on puppy selection and training, you can ask me about anything in the Q&A. But, um, but yeah, let's get started. Here is Flo Schneider. Hey, Flo, welcome to the show. Thanks for the invitation. Glad to be here. <laughs> I'm really glad to uh, have you on the podcast because I've been listening to... In my kind of absence from doing my own podcast, I kind of became... I kind of was getting my kick almost from listening to lots of other people's podcasts. Mm. So I discovered your podcast uh, a while back and I really enjoyed it because I think I found it actually because over the last maybe five or six months, I've been addicted to Jens Frank and Tobias Gustafsson's mm. uh, content. Great. And I think I probably searched for their names on the podcast search bar and came across your podcast. And then I've kind of been listening mm. to it ever since. Um, but actually, uh, I didn't really know a lot about you, Flo, yourself. Um, and this is kind of the curse of like running a podcast is sometimes you never really end up talking about yourself because you're always interviewing people. And then I saw a video of, I, I don't even know where I saw it, but it popped up a video of you training your own dog. It was quite a while back that I saw this video as well, but I just remember seeing it and thinking, wow, this guy, you know, he's, cause so, he's not just an interviewer. He actually has legitimate <laughs> skills here you know because this is impressive <laughs> sounds good I, I like to hear that <laughs> <laughs> so um I'd, I'd love for you to explain a little bit more of your story because uh, some people aren't going to know who you are you know how you got into dogs and then maybe we can go from there yeah so my name is Florian Schneider I'm from Austria I've moved to a different county years ago or two years ago and we have now moved again but now we are uh, operating in in lower austria and vienna and but actually our company is, is focusing today on on detection on professional dog training so we work with all kinds of agencies and 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 branches on the professional sector but also 
we offer our services to, I say, interested civilians. Uh, and how 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 did I get here? I I didn't grow up with dogs. Um, I wasn't really into dogs ever. I I did some horse riding actually when I was smaller, and um, until I got bit <laughs> by the horse, <laughs> and they and they kicked me off and shook me off. But I, I thought it was fun. But I, I never was really into dogs and just having those normal thoughts that I think every kid has. I would like to have a dog, but not really thinking about all the consequences and all of the uh, the duties that come with a with a pet. And when I was 17 and probably on the peak of my property, my parents didn't know any other exit but buying a dog and maybe having the dog solve the problem for them. And somehow that worked out, um, I guess. So I took responsibility. I started uh, or I joined a search and rescue dog organization back then. And that just really, um, yeah, hit me. Um I was totally... What kind of dog did you get? There was a, a, a mix. It was a German Shepherd and a Swiss Mountain Dog mixture. Okay. So it was a child of love. It was a, of two um, breeding dogs who lived together. Um, and, and accidentally that litter happened because it was a, a purebred German Shepherd bitch. Actually back then from quite a famous uh, Austrian breeder. And also the, the Swiss mountain dog was a great sport dog. So these dogs had a lot of potential. And of course, I didn't know it back then because back then I was totally green. Uh, I, I knew what was the front and the back of a dog, but that was basically it. And um, having this this dog was a good thing because on the one hand, um, she, she we say in German, she gave me a lot of things that I didn't have to work for. So, so she had a lot of drive and motivation was easy. But on the other hand, having such a potential dog, you really have to take care of things and have to commit to the whole process of dog training. And um, things turned out to to work out. And then people started to ask me to support them a little bit here and there. And that's how, how the dog training evolved and, and becoming a trainer. And, and I did some sports exams. I did uh, international mission readiness tests. Uh, in the search and rescue part, um, yeah, that's how it started. I don't know how uh, the search and rescue works in in Austria, but I think my understanding of it in in this country is that even though it's kind of mostly volunteer based, there's actually quite a long apprenticeship really before you actually get to kind of go out there and <clears throat> be doing it for real. Is is that the case case in Austria? Actually, I knew I know some quite some. British search and rescue people and it really depends on where you're operating so all the the I say the, the wildlife or the the, the area searches etc are mostly voluntary but the the user teams for urban search and rescue are mostly by mostly done I think by professional fire brigades and organizations like this and in Austria it's very similar so we have a lot of volunteer organizations where you can just join and depending on your organization, you don't just work the dogs, but you also get some training in um, advanced first aid. Or if you join the fire brigade, you, you do some of those um, parts as well. Um, but I think it's quite similar, actually. The system is quite similar. A lot of volunteers. Uh, 
I, I guess what I'm saying, because we uh, we run some kind of like fun man trailing classes and stuff at our local business. And sometimes people enjoy it so much that they end up kind of going, oh, you know, this is something my dog loves. I actually really enjoy. I'm going to look into doing search and rescue training. And then they get put off because they go online and it's like, you know, I think you kind of have to volunteer and go hide in a bush for two years <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> before you get to actually get involved with uh, maybe training a dog yourself. Sure. Of, of course, this is this is quite a path to walk, um, becoming an operational search and rescue dog handler. Um, also regarding that there are few goals and tests that you have to uh, accomplish before you will be sent out in a real mission. And this is, a, I always said when I was doing more research and rescue back then, also being part of a, a mission organization of the Red Cross back then, um, it's like a lifestyle because actually all your leisure time is about training the dogs, training your 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 peers from the group and yeah, it just takes a lot of time. So that's some sometimes one of the big uh, major effects where people drop out because it takes too much time and they just have this very romantic thought of, oh, nice, my, my, my dog could <laughs> save people's lives, which is a nice thought, but uh, the, the, the work behind that and the effort you have to put in very often is forgotten before yeah absolutely i totally understand that it's obviously like a massive responsibility uh to be to be in charge of that so am i right in thinking you're not you're not involved in search and rescue anymore though right you kind of moved on from that yes and no um still both of my dogs that my my private dogs um are are trained in search and rescue actually my german pointer is even certified in a very low level test but we, we did a test few years ago before corona hit us and so meanwhile we we don't train for missions but we train to train others so that's one of our our subjects that we offer to our clients so this year we'll be invited by the uh, federal alpine rescue to train the trainers there uh, last year we've been to a very big um, german organization called brh which is also a federal organization search and rescue in area and rubble um so we do that but um unfortunately less training for my dogs and search and rescue is a very fun subject so it's still one of my favorites because i think not just for the handlers but also for the dogs they can just run wild um through the woods and when finding a person just barking on them until they get rewarded so how can it get any better you know <laughs> it's like Yes, totally. There's not a lot of, and I don't mean this in a in a, a mean way, but there's there's not as much control maybe as there is in some other disciplines. So is that right? Uh, of course, I'm I'm a big fan of obedience, and I love taking control. Um, but of course, you're right. So in in, in this subject, we we have to rely more on the natural, um, not instinct, but the uh, skill sets of dogs so we can really use them in a quite uh, traditional way and and i think that's one of the good things or fun things and where many a lot of things come easy because it's just natural for the dogs run wild and hunt people 
How come they do that as opposed to, you know, sometimes when we see these videos online of dogs doing the tracking where their nose is glued to the floor and it, it looks incredible. Why do we see that different style between search and rescue and tracking? I guess it depends on on where you're using the dog. And um, so like an area dog here in, in Lower Austria is not doing the same job as an area search and rescue dog in Tirol. Because there you have mountains, it's an alpine area. It's very steep. It can have valleys and 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 dangerous creeks and and things like that. And here, for example, you have a big river, the Danube River, and um, lower hilly environments. So the, the dogs need to deal with a lot of different things. And if you get to the more urban side, of course, a, a dog that searches for a specific person makes more sense than having a dog searching woods for every person and maybe one of them is the missing one so the trekking or trailing i guess makes a lot of sense in 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 the more urban environments or if you have because you know when when you're looking for a missing person uh, in the mountains you don't have an id object so you just know that someone is missing because they left this uh, mountain cottage and never arrived at the other mountain cottage but they don't they didn't leave a, a sock for for the worst case yeah. <laughs> that, the, that the rescuers <laughs> could have an id object um so that's one of the biggest uh, difference differences between avalanche rubble and area dogs that those dogs are searching for live human beings and trekking dogs and trailing dogs most often lead search for individuals actually not regarding if they're alive or dead because they follow a track and similar to the scent detection a search and rescue dog in area avalanche or rubble is always browsing around searching for human scent and then go to the detailed search find the person and indicate a trail or tracking dog is from the very beginning in the scent working in the sand to find the source. So there's a big difference. And I think that trading and tracking might be more uh, difficult because the dogs always have to stay in the sand and always need to double check if they're moving in the correct direction. So if the, if the track that they're following is always getting younger, younger, younger in terms of mm. time. Um, yeah, I guess I'm just like trying to understand why that more precision style of tracking doesn't work when you are in a more rural environment. Is it just because, you know, it's exhausting for the dog to try to keep that up for long periods of time? <laughs> or I understand, you know, you don't have the uh, the, the scent mm-hmm. ID. Yeah, there's kind of isn't there kind of almost two tasks there? There's finding the scent to begin with, and then there is the actual following the scent. Uh, yes and no. So I think those those different dogs can be uh, can be combined in in a very clever way. So, for example, if you have a, a position of the person where the person has been last seen, there is a shortcut for that, but I forgot it. And so, for example, you know that the, the there is the car of the person of the missing person, and you know they have left there, but you don't know if they went left, right south, north, east, west, or wherever. So you use uh, tracking or trailing dogs 
to find the direction the person took from the car because you know that the person was driving there. So at least they close the door and you can start from, from the driver's door. And then when you have a, a rough direction where the person most probably went to, then you can send in the area dogs who cover a bigger area in, in a way shorter time. You know, so mm, that makes a hell of a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah that makes that, sense. That could work. But again, if you're looking for uh, an elderly person who um, is a little bit confused and they left the elderly's home and didn't return from their lunch uh, or post-lunch walk, and then maybe the area dogs don't make any sense because you're in the inner city environment and having a dog run free just looking for people will just don't not work out because you have people everywhere so there you need uh, the the special trained um tracking or trailing dog because this dog really follows the track of this individual and there for example you can work with the id object of the person because um, the emergency call is done by the elderly's home so they know who is missing and they can deliver these objects required for those searches for example. Yeah, fantastic. No, thanks for explaining that. That That is way clearer now. So what happened after your kind of uh, time more actively involved in search and rescue? You know, what, what happened next? What's, what's the next bit of the story? So I, I I started this in a, in, a, in a sports club, you know. So also when I started it, I didn't know that it was, there was differences between and mission organizations and, and just sports clubs, because this was a whole new world for me. Um, but after some time, I realized, okay, this is a sports club. So actually in this club, it's uh, there is no chance of getting any real missions. So we're just training for sports. When you sp- say sports, uh, Flo, what, what do you mean? Is that, do you mean like IPO or like it was, protection no, sports? No, it's a search and rescue sport. So it's uh, it's like IGP or IPO. There are rules by the FCI and IRO, which is the International Rescue Dog Organization. And uh, he's sleeping and kicking around. Uh, (laughs) And so in these guidelines, you can have different kinds of sports tests, um, which are also the, the baseline requirements for then attending the mission readiness tests, which in my opinion makes a lot of sense. Uh, so I was in this organization. I was trying different dog sports. So it was some some kind of obedience, uh, but low level obedience, and it was search and rescue sports. So with my first dog, I participated in avalanche um, exams, uh, rubble area, and then also did the Iro MRT area. First time in Sweden, uh, in, in in Slovenia, and we failed big times. <laughs> the second time in Belgium, uh, we were better prepared and and. and could accomplish the mission readiness test and oh this is this is fantastic i didn't realize actually that there was search and rescue mm. sports i've never mm-hmm. heard of that i guess that's that kind of sounds like what the kmpv is to the police you know where like the kmpv is like almost like an aptitude test or like you know but it, high level of course but then uh you know, a lot of police organizations recruit from the mm. kmpv and end up buying those dogs so it's kind of kind of similar to that yes Kind of, um, because there is also world championship, of course, and there are national championships. And um, for sure, this is an, uh, an upper level of, of class compared to 
other search and rescue tests. But of course, there is no no agencies behind the curtain who are scouting the best dogs to buy from them, you know, like in KMPV. Are you really looking oh, for? Oh, really? No one. No, because it's it's a voluntary system. You know, every everyone has their own dogs, and that they train with. And very few people would consider buying a fully trained search and rescue dog because it's also about mm. uh, training your own dog and going mm. through all these training steps and really bonding and, and building relationship. Um, which, which does it have an influence on breeding though? Uh, definitely, there they, there are some some breeders who claim to to breed for search and rescue or all kinds of nose work. So, f- for example, I have claimed that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he said that with some skepticism. Sure, uh, because depending on the breed and 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 which organization you belong to, you have certain guidelines for breeding to be accepted in the breeding program. So, for example, if you have a Malinois. An FCI pedigree Malinois, you need to have some kind of IGB. I think I'm I'm really bad with those things. Or if you have a Labrador, an FCI pedigree Labrador, you need to have certain exams. And for example, if I'm not interested into that, but I know I have a hell of a dog, and I would like to, and I know the dog is healthy, and I would want to breed with the dog, then I couldn't breed in in this system. So. They say they have search and rescue dogs, but they also have to do some bite work. Then they can't say they have a search and rescue dog line. Even though I, I, I'm not skeptical about having a biting dog who is a great search and rescue dog. I know many dogs that would uh, do a great job doing that, but um, there is no search and rescue line. Therefore, the breeding is too, too, too short term, you know. Oh, I don't, I, I don't really follow you, Flo. So, so you know, if some. Let's say that I was breeding Malinois and I have to meet that criteria. I have to pass a, a IGP exam. But can I also be selecting for dogs that are, have the, the um, skills necessary for search and rescue? Definitely, for sure. I think, I think it's, uh, we're looking for the very same dogs in both programs. We want a lot of drive. We want um, clearer minds. We want uh, dogs that are safe and sound in all kinds of environments. So we actually, or basically, we're looking for the very same uh, traits in these dogs. So that's another point where I think it's nonsense to say that, that I breed uh, search and rescue dogs. <laughs> because, because you think that actually you're just looking working for dogs. working ability. Exactly, exactly. They don't need to be bred for that task right. specifically. Right. Is that kind of what you're right? But of course, later so on, you could uh, um, divide dogs by having different kinds of examinations. So if, if they have a firm and hard grip for bite work, or if they just have a, a, a very light physique and, and moving good through different kinds of environments. So when you're buying a dog flow, what do you look for? Uh, that's a very interesting topic. Uh, tomorrow I will go again and scout a litter of puppies. Um, and the thing is that there is no foundation behind um, testing puppies because there is no puppy test on this planet that um, really that really gives you some some good information about how the dogs will develop because there are so many more factors it- uh, that they will go through. 
Is there anything you look for in the parents, though? Yes, and and of course, I also test the, the puppies. And but it's I think when you're looking for a proper working dog, it's smarter to test year olds or ten months to fourteen month old dogs. That that makes a lot of sense. But when I I prefer puppies. <laughs> Oh my God, you're dropping so much uh, information here, Flo. <laughs> I prefer puppies uh, because I can okay. add my handwriting, my style of, of training to those dogs a, a lot better, of course. And So you're willing to take the gamble a exactly. little bit. Exactly, I'm a gambler. The, right, yeah. okay. <laughs> <laughs> and so I check the parents. Um, most important thing is that they're healthy. Um, so actually, that's a good thing in Austria they are quite strict about those health examinations. So mean, meanwhile, with the Labradors, we we get x-rays from the spine, um, shoulders, elbows, hips, probably. So that's required, I think. And then you have some more breed typical sicknesses that could be genetically uh, given from, 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 how to say, from generation to generation. And so the health is the, most important for for us and then i also have a look on i don't want very tall dogs so i really all of all of the dogs that i have from from german pointers to to malinois to labradors i've had two labradors in the last years that i sold and all of those dogs were rather small and then i don't know if they grow smaller when they eat my food but or if I just select <laughs> the smaller individuals, which I really prefer for work, because maybe Why is maybe that? I Why have is to that? carry them. So thirty kilo is is the upper limit of of dogs that we are looking for. For also for the clients that we are working with, most of the time. And and when I see those healthy and small dogs, uh, of course I'm also interested in have they done any tests any working tests in in their typical breed um bite work or retrievers doing some kinds of working tests or field trials or whatever and then of course i i i i double check with the breeders which i normally know or get to know and, and just talk with them how how they would raise the litters and uh, what do they expose the puppies to are they driving somewhere? Are they shooting? Are they shouting? Are there other people coming at a certain point or a certain age of, of the puppies? Are they following any um, typical breeding program? Like, um, you know, there are, there, there are different kinds of puppy raising programs where you have defined each day what what's next, what kind of stimulus will, will follow today, 30 seconds of... Um, yeah, turning the dog on his back and just rubbing his belly, things like that, uh, which is very interesting. Yeah, the old yeah. Um, ENS yeah. stuff, early neurological yeah. stimulation. Which is not a must-have for us, but I, I think that's a very interesting topic. And I just try to get to know to to the breeders if it's the first time that we're getting a dog there. Um, and in the end, tomorrow, I will, I'm very interested in these dogs. They're from a friend of mine. Uh, also a client of ours, um, and we will see what uh, what he did. So he took them with he he took the dogs with him um, on he to his work. So he's a soldier in a in a, 
and special unit. And so those little puppies were already exposed quite early to shooting and helicopters and um, barracks. And I think genetic over the last year as well, I feel like, because uh, I went on a massive puppy hunt myself, mm. I feel like uh, I realized as well that genetics matters far more than I thought it did in the socialization, having a conf- resilient dog kind of aspect of things. Because um, it was one of the things that I was a little bit nervous about when I initially approached a breeder that I ended up going with because he lives in such a remote location. Um, but when I went to see the puppies, I was just amazed at their confidence. Mm. And, uh, you know, obviously he does put an effort into socialization, but it's not the same when you live in the middle of nowhere versus if you live in a city, it's it's not as easy. Uh, so yeah, I was quite shocked actually by, you know, if you're deliberately selecting for resilient dogs, you know, what impact Mm. that has. So the thing that we do always, um, with puppies and with uh, year-old dogs is that we take them to a place where they have never been before to test them because I I get no value out of no, it. I wanted to ask about this. You alluded to, you know, really I wouldn't even worry too much about testing them when they're super young and that you can't tell a lot. But you said when they get to kind of 10 months, a year old, you test them. And that's what I was going to ask. How how do you go about that? Yeah. Um, so, of course, it depends on what the dog should do later on, but there are some, I think, maybe some basics that that we can have a look at, uh, at uh, with every dog. And also with the puppies, we, as I said, we go to new environments where they haven't been before, which is very interesting with the puppies because most often until that very day where I appear in their lives, they've always been with with their brothers and sisters. And maybe they have been to different locations, but never alone. So this is a big, uh, big impact. And I also ask the breeders if they separate the dogs in the litter, because those dogs that are already used to it will have no problem coming with me later on. Um, so we, when we test a, a grown dog or a year old dog, we run through different phases. Uh, but I think that would um, it would take too much time. But I, I go through it. As, as fast as possible. Uh, so we 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 try to meet at a at a place the dog doesn't know, but which is a safe environment, you know, or we, where we can guess that nothing will happen that would mess up the dog or ourselves. Is is the breeder present or, or not? Well, the often it's not the breeder; it's the it's the owner who wants to give the dog away because they are just they can't deal with the dog anymore or sometimes it's the breeder see, okay. um, so or the vendor and so the first phase we look at the dog without adding any kinds of um, primary reinforces so i might have something with me but i'm not offering food or, nor toys because i want to see how the dog reacts to a stranger person um which is not offensive so I'm I'm talking to the dog. I say, "Come, come with me." Blah blah. I let him sniff my my legs, etc. But I'm not offering. I'm not luring them somewhere. I just want to see how comfortable the dog would be to, to join me going somewhere. And of course, depending on what the dog is was pre-trained with, you have to be um, uh, careful. <laughs> 
because if it's a pre-trained bite work dog and you don't know how it was trained, then maybe you want to introduce yourself with some kibble and just to show that you're one of the good guys. <laughs> you know? um, Bring your running shoes. Yeah. But, um, but I really <laughs> prefer not to do that, just to, to see how open the dog is because not regarding in, in, in what kind of field the dog will work in, neither police or, or search and rescue or um, single purpose detection Actually, dogs, meanwhile, live in the family and they are in and with the unit. They're part of the team and they should be quite neutral um, with other people and other dogs. And if the dog already now shows a problem, well, then he's already dismissed. You know, so um, and that's not an ability that the dog learned that. Ho- of course, I can enforce the social the social aspect, <clears throat> but I'm, I'm looking for this trait in the dog. So we walk with the dogs without any rewards. Um, I try to make the dog follow me uh, on different surfaces. So we try to find, for example, uh, some metal stairways where you can look through uh, just to walk them up without giving any further rewards and just to see how how comfortable the dog is with those things. Um, We prefer to be at least two people who cast the dog. So... When we walk, one of us is um, using a metal bowl and just hits the ground, the concrete with it, or puts it on the ground and hits it with rocks because it's a very uncomfortable, loud noise. I hate it myself, but I want to see how the dogs react. And it's totally, okay, if they react, hopefully they react. Hopefully they are not deaf. But um, I still want to see how fast the dog can relax again and and, exactly recover and and follow me. So we do some obstacles in environment. We have some obstacles concerning noises. And if that works, I, and the dog hasn't failed yet, I start to add some um, food motivation. So I, I just see how, how much quicker the dog would follow me now with food over these different obstacles, like the stairs. So I'm not dismissing a dog who, who, who is not immediately walking the stairs with me, but um, if I have a dog that comes with me immediately, that's just perfect. Um, but if I see that there was a dog hesitating without food, and now with food, the dog is coming much, much faster, then this might be a good indication for me as the observer that this dog is a quick learner with food and also doesn't take a lot of time and is not hesitant and is, is not skeptical. Um, so we, we take a look at those things. Um, and finally, we're always looking for prey-driven dogs. So we want both food and, and, and prey objects-driven dogs. So we play with them a little bit. Um, I don't, I'm not interested in a proper out uh, because that's something that I can train very fast and easy but i'm interested in how much the dog wants the ball or the the top so we throw it a few times um and in the third time throwing for example we throw it to our colleague this colleague acts like he would hide the toy and but he's not and then we send the dog and then we just count the seconds until the dog gives up if he gives up 
So we're looking for a dog that at least searches in this very not yet trained um, state of mind where the dog probably is in. We're looking for a dog that searches for the toy, depending on the age, on the information that we have on the dog for uh, one to three minutes, just a blank search, for example. And if dogs show that behaviors and these traits, then we would be happy to bring them with us and take some more time testing. And because it's always hard to have a, a test that just happened at one day for maybe 15 minutes. So the whole test is not taking any longer because we need some quick decisions made. Um, and then we, we ask if we can have the dog for maybe two or three weeks to have some further testing. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I, I love it when that happens, you know, when someone has a dog that's maybe just too much for them as a, as a pet dog, but can actually go on and make use of its natural talents. It's uh, the best thing, really, for, for a dog like that. It's fantastic. Do, do, you, um, do you also do you breed any dogs yourself? Uh, do you sell dogs, anything, anything like that? Um, we, we sell dogs. Um, right now, I only have my two private dogs um, that are too old for being sold. <laughs> no, they're, they're my best co-workers. And, and um, we have planned maybe to have some litters in future, um, but nothing to 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 add to your calendar because there are no dates yet no individuals that match which which breed flo that would be can pd melanoma oh, and fantastic. and probably in future thinking about um, german pointers and labrador hybrids oh oh wow that's cool i love the um i'm a massive fan of outcrossing i think there's so many issues with inbreeding in the current state of dogs and, uh, even better if you can do it with a with a task in mind so we're That's we're fantastic. thinking about this like first of all breeding makes a lot of sense if done properly and on the other hand we see those can pv dogs and in our mind and and that's what i say today maybe in five years i will say the, the complete opposite but uh, we we really think that um having a high priority on the fitness uh, the health of the dogs etc is is a lot better than the the design and and we know that we have dutchies malinois german shepherds and depending on the breed or the line in kmpv also <clears throat> other breeds uh, you wouldn't think of and just to gain these traits and these physique that they're looking for. And maybe the same thing shall be done with um, uh, floppy ears to yeah. to combine a, a German pointer, short hair pointer with a, with a Labrador or something. It's already happening. And, and those dogs can be great. Uh, we have a pet dog training business, so... We see a lot of pet dogs, but more and more people are buying working line dogs. I think oftentimes they don't really fully understand what they're mm. buying. Um, but I've always been like somewhat skeptical of beagles as a as a breed for for work because so many of the beagles that we see are just kind of fat couch potatoes. <laughs> um, but we had a client recently, and I I went to visit them in the house, and I've never seen a beagle with so much 
energy. You know, it was kind of uh, the dog was running around like like a working cocker spaniel. You know, just bouncing off the walls, so eager to go. And I said to the lady, like, "You have an incredible dog," <laughs> and I think she was like, "What do you mean? You know, this dog is crazy." But uh, you know, sometimes you just come across a dog and you're just like, "Wow!" Like that's that's an amazing dog. Sure. Yeah. Sure. And and that's also something which I think is very interesting in the search and rescue dog world because, for example, with my KNPB Malinois, I could not um, attend any high class Mondio uh, Mondio ring and um, tests because it's not an FCI uh, pedigree dog. Yeah, it, it is like it is. But for example, for the search and rescue, it, you don't need a pedigree. And and they're world champions and they're um especially in the in the MRT section of of, of those dogs. Um you find a lot of uh, or at least back then you found a lot of mixed mixed breed dogs. Um so Yeah, well the cl- the closed uh registries thing is like is far more recent than I think people think. You know, it wasn't really that long ago when people were doing a lot of uh, outcrossing, bringing the dogs back in, mm. and you, you ended up with dogs with a lot more genetic diversity, and that was just normal. Um, but I want I want to jump back, though, Flo, because uh, at some point you made a transition, and, and I know now you do the the bug detec- detection, and you, you, you kind of... Like, um, it seems like you kind of moved on from the search and rescue stuff. I know you said you still do training and and stuff like that. Um, Am I right in thinking at some point you actually ended up going and training with the SWDI? Was that the kind of beginning of actually doing this full-time as a career? Um, So I... uh, In Austria, it's like after school, you can choose as a male between army or military or a civil service and actually i have registered for uh, for the army or the military uh, it was the uh, it's it, uh, directly tra- translated would be the high alpine hunters um oh wow and i would have loved to go there but before school ended i got my dog and now I was totally into dogs. And I knew that when I joined the military, um, I have to be at the barracks and I'm only at home on the weekends, maybe, if. And I didn't want to have that back then. Um, so I, I I told them because of this and that reason, I want to switch back to the civil service. So I became a low-level paramedic. And actually also the civil service um, lasted for nine months, whereas the military only lasted for six months. But I wanted to be at home at least and also being trained as a low-level paramedic. So this was like advanced uh, first aid. And after that, I stayed with the Red Cross. So I moved um, my job to a different um, department, but there I become a high-level trained paramedic. We don't have a paramedic system, but it's, you know, we have the, the same uh same pictures of injuries etc we're just not not allowed to get that much medication because we have a, an emergency doctor system here but um at a certain point i built my business besides this job that i was doing full time so 42 hours plus per week and i built my business uh, which was also just pet dog training or 
pet dog training. And then I tried to split it into 50-50 because the dog training business went well and uh, I needed more and more time, but it was quite different, uh, difficult for me having shifts and planning forward for more than four weeks, you know, because I never knew what shifts I will have next month. So in the end, I quit this job and I became a full-time dog trainer. Maybe not professional back then, but <laughs> I did my best. I had clients I could live from it. And I was always doing those work-related subjects because coming from search and rescue, this was just my, my thing. And then I was asked one day by a pest control, a local pest control company, if we could train their pet dog to become a bed dog detection dog. And I didn't really think long about it. I just said, sure, that's no problem. And so I was casting their dog and I told them, to be honest, I, I don't, I think it's, it's not the problem to train a dog to detect bad bugs, but uh, it will be a big problem or difficulty in training your dog to become a bad bug detection dog. So this was a secondhand um, rescued dog from Serbia. Uh, it looked like a German pointer, um, but it was just the looks. <laughs> it was not the mentality. And so I, I made them the offer to um, give them a discount in training their dog, but at the same time bring, bring in one of my dogs. So in the end, my dog um, passed the progress and the test in the end. And through this progression, I looked out for more education for myself. And that's how, to, to give you a very, very long answer, that's how I, I met the, with the SWDI and did from 2019 very beginning of 2019 i attended the nine months um training with uh, one one meeting per month in tuscany italy where i got to meet tobias and already after the first meeting i said well it's it's not enough having these monthly meetings um so i joined their their year-long online training for detection and then I got to know them better and also got to know Jens. And, and I was driving to Sweden for a few workshops that uh, were um, sold with the online training to have a, a yearly meeting there. And I was just feeling very good with them. So I have invited them to trainings in Austria. We had a, a four module a uh, course for hot surface tracking or multiple surface tracking. We also had that uh, with Tobias and Jens. Then we had with uh, Jens uh, four module training for uh, verbal directionals. And then I did the one year master trainer class uh, with Jens. Unfortunately, now they have separated. And maybe fortunately, because they're both doing what they're doing best now, just in different companies. So uh, I guess we can be happy for them. That uh, they develop as they prefer to do, and yeah, so that's how I got to know them and how I how I tried to soak up as much knowledge as possible in different branches of dog training, and also specializing in those things that uh, we are offering to our clients. Have we missed anyone? Is there anyone else that was like really influential in kind of your <clears throat> development? with uh scent training uh, 
everyone on my podcast. Um, <laughs> even though that was not in an early stage, uh, of course, there have been uh, people influenced me in my very beginning when they told me um, dog training is not a job. It's nothing you can live from. This was really enforcing me to to show them better. Uh, I was, of course, I was very lucky with my first trainers who are not famous people and who who just had have a great mindset. And some of them are not doing anything with dogs anymore. They became mothers and fathers and and but had a, a big impact on me back then and. I think I was quite an annoying trainee because I always wanted to know more and I I I like to play with fire to say I I always had a look to other trainers which of course was not always a good idea um because sometimes I fell on my nose and and learned uh -huh, I should have listened better to what my trainers say but but this was a lot of um experience that I could gain and i wouldn't want to miss it today so all the good and bad things influenced me of course yeah very interesting i i feel the same way as well i was like that when i was kind of more actively studying i was always asking i think that's actually why uh run doing a podcast quite suits me because i used to always ask <laughs> yes. questions yeah right completely uh distract the whole lesson <laughs> <laughs> yeah <laughs> So I'm really curious about the bed bug business and also just like your business in general, like, cause this, it, as a pet dog trainer looking in, it's, uh, very alien to me. Like, I, I, I don't know how that, that whole industry works. Like, do you, uh, you know, how do you get clients? Do you, are people signed on contracts? Um, you know, are you, uh, because, because, you know, especially with bed bugs, I would think that you know, you start getting more into the pest control industry and then people might start uh, saying, hey, we've got a problem with rats as well. Can you help us with that? Mm. And we've got a problem with this and that. So I know that this is a very broad question, but but how does that industry actually work? Hmm. So, uh, so many ideas now how to start with, but let's try it this way. Um, I think people got their attention on us because they saw the many things that we did with the SWDI. They saw our training on Facebook and Instagram and YouTube and, and started to join by them themselves, like, like some, some working dog handlers from agencies just started to buy online training with us and to see how it works. And, and when they liked it, they asked for permission to invite us to do some workshops or they joined workshops at our place. And this is really how, how things started. And I'm very thankful to a group of uh, Swiss guys who, who were very interested in us because of course we are, Austria is the center of Europe, of course. <laughs> of course, <laughs> not just geographically. Um, and and it's just not that far to go to Austria from Switzerland or Germany, um, like you have to to drive to Sweden, taking the ferry or going through Denmark and blah, blah, blah. So Austria is just, with its position, quite handy for people from the south. Let's, let's call it that way. 
So that's how people got attracted. And also we offered um, training with the SWDI, for, for example. And of course, um, their brand um, helped us to evolve. And that's the one thing. And meanwhile, we um, last year I did more workshops. I wanted to do less this year because it, it got a lot of driving last year. I almost had two to three workshops per month in all of Europe from, from Greece to, to Belgium. Um, a lot of workshops in Germany and in Switzerland, actually very few in Austria. We don't have a lot of clients in Austria. Um, and we have some agencies that work with us on with contracts uh, for month long programs. Then we have these workshops, we have the online training and and yeah, somehow yeah, all of these things um, um, developed and it, it's getting more and more, which we're very happy about also having um, the, the selection of dogs and selling pre-trained dogs as we did uh, the last few months and years already more and more. Um, and now there is a very interesting thing in my my case. I, I started as a pet dog trainer, as a civilian, with a civilian background. Um, I had this, I always had uh, the relations to agencies, etc. from from the ambulance where I worked at. And, um, but that was it, actually. So I always thought back then being a pet dog trainer that um, the real deal is working with working dog teams and real units and agencies and people in uniforms, etc. And of course, that is great. And I love it. I wouldn't want to miss it. But um, it's not the most difficult thing, honestly, because most of the time you get dogs that were more or less proper and properly selected. You have, you, you can expect them to have a certain mindset and motivation. So you can really focus on training skills. And most of the time, you, the same um, counts for the people and not just for the dogs. Also, the dog handlers have this mentality. They want to, to, to reach a goal. They're motivated, they're fit, and, and they're more or less smart to understand what we want. <clears throat> uh, but when you go to the pet dog training, you maybe just have a, a dog that is perfectly fine, but who gets his food just for looking cute. And so you have to find new ways on how to motivate this dog. Um, what's the real enforcer? Um, what's the bait that this fish wants? And I think that's one of the hard things that pet dog trainers have to master. So pet dog trainers have to have such a bigger toolbox sometimes to, to make their clients happy. And, and that's also one of the, the bad things about our business. Um, so if there is, um, any and this is not everyone of course and and maybe i will i will get some bad reactions on this but there are some working dog trainers who after their well-deserved retirement start to do their pet dog business and they just have to write on their homepage that they have been military working dog trainer or handler or police dog trainer and civilians uh can we curse on this podcast yeah, of and civilians get a boner when they see that. Oh, right, yeah, I want my dog to be trained by this 
Exof guy and blah blah blah. But probably just handled one dog, uh, not even from puppy age on. And maybe this was uh, a year old dog that he already got pre-trained and did his service, maybe didn't even deploy abroad, blah, blah, blah. I'm really happy for these people to start their business because obviously they have a, a passion for dog training. Um, but, but people nowadays are really uh, paralyzed and, and just happy if they see, ah, oh, this or that person has this or that degree. So I think that's quite hard sometimes in this in this branch to um, to show or to have a proof of skills because in Austria being a dog trainer is an open business. So Same yeah, here. you can you, and that has a good and bad things of course. But there is no real trustful proof of skills and knowledge, um, which sometimes I miss. Um, we are meanwhile in a good position, so people know us and and we have our business running well but i think that can be quite um, frustrating for people who are starting and, and growing yeah no i i think that's a, a widespread issue is uh it's very difficult for people to truly assess someone's skill level um or make choices about you know which trainer is the best suited to mm. them i was um is training the is like training the trainers so to speak is that uh the biggest part of your business then because i was kind of i was curious about um the more operational stuff mm. you know uh like you mentioned selling dogs and then also uh actually going out there and looking for bed bugs and stuff like that is that is that more of a, a smaller part of your business uh, actually i can't tell you so we have many workshops concerning just the trainers so most often when we work with agencies it's it's uh, it's just the trainers there who will then decide what to bring to their unit or and whatnot and which is perfectly fine that's that's how it should run and um, also with the search and rescue organizations most of the time it's the trainers and then we also have from the voluntary perspective we have just a whole group of handlers and trainers and, and trainees and beginners and uh, and so on and the uh, same counts for our online services where we just i think we reached a whole range of people who are interested oh maybe maybe i misunderstood flow so with the bed bug detection you don't do a huge amount ah, of sorry. you actually going out with your dog and and doing it sorry i misunderstood yeah um meanwhile not so much um because i tried to get these contracts to our dog handlers to um to reward them for for the efforts they took the, the past few years and and now being mission proofed and be able to to do those deployments but of course first of all i i think it's very important to do your own real searches as a trainer and stay on the ground and and, and doing it yourself on the other hand i really enjoy it and it's a fun thing to to really use your dogs what you have trained them for uh and that's what I do with my my two males. Uh, our future dogs will be trained for um, explosives and probably for firearms, um, and probably will have more, actually more, or or maybe also depending on the subject, less and um, deployments, of course, because of the subjects itself. Uh, but that's what we are going for now. 
we have to. I, I, I guess I wondered about the size of the industry, you know, how much opportunity is there? Because I've spoken to some people previously about similar industries, not, not bed bugs or, or anything like that, um, where they've kind of said, you know, it's fantastic work if you can get it, but, you know, it is actually really difficult to, to make a living doing this. I'm just curious, uh, you know, what... What yeah. is the opportunity out there? right now? I think right now to live just from this is is really difficult. Um, of course, COVID um, had a big impact because we didn't have any international traveling and no tourism. Um, parts of Austria are very tourist touristic, and they rely on tourism. And we we get the box. Actually, there is a studies on this and, and contact tracing of bad bugs that the most bugs that we have here are coming from the US and and from China. Um, spy bugs, maybe. <laughs> 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 and of course, during COVID, there was no, um, yeah, not, not, not that much tourism or, or almost none. So in this time, um, everything was quite relaxed. And of course, all the hotels and all the apartments um, had other problems, but bad bugs. They had to pay rents and and, and f- get get money to 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 pay their bills, but not bad bug detection dogs. Now it's getting more and more again because we have tourism, we have people traveling um, through countries. Uh, from my colleagues in Germany, I know that um, they have a lot of work to do. Uh, in, in Austria right now, it's it's slowly getting more and more. And also, we can um, see a difference in countries with um, having different measurements of pest control companies. So, for example, in, in Austria, this is a... Uh, it's like a... It's not a master degree, but directly translated, it's, it's a master profession, like a tailor... Um, or or someone working with wood or a smith or, mm. or whatever. Um, so it's this kind of profession, handwerk, we call it. Yeah, I guess people talk about tradesmen, you know, like, uh, as you said, electricians, exactly. plumbers. Exactly, something like yeah. this. Um, and in other countries, it's not, it's, it's more or less an open business or it's something that is related, for example, um, to companies who do um, cleaning buildings and stuff. So this object is for, for example i think it's like this in germany maybe so of course the austrian pest control companies sell, say we have less bad bugs because we are better trained i don't really know if that's true because i'm not a pest controller i'm just i'm just asking for uh, for for deployments <laughs> so with the uh so how about um, the appetite for actually buying trained dogs is—is is that an industry where there is a lot of opportunity again, or is—or is that another one that's kind of suffered? Let's say it this way: every dog we wanted to sell, we sell, we could sell, except for except for one, um, because he was not that environmentally as good as as the. The client expected, so we took this dog back, no problem. But the the question is really, if you want to, it, it, it's a question of money, of course. So I wouldn't want to live from it because if you want to live from it, you need twenty, thirty dogs plus, 
And then it's a question of quality. So where do you get good quality dogs from? How much time do you have to, to train them? And then you really have to sell those dogs. So right now we can somehow choose who we want to sell a dog to because it's just a small side business. Um, but if you really have to rely on selling dogs, then um, yeah, then then the, then you need to to sell the dogs wherever the clients are from, and you don't really have this. So we have a lot of trust to the people we we sell our dogs to, and we have a, of course a, a certain relationship to these dogs, and, and we don't just see them as uh, search machines. So yeah, totally. Yeah. totally. Is uh, um, uh, is your uh, the main customers that are buying dogs? Are they like uh, police forces yes. and, and stuff like that? Or okay, because when I've spoken to police officers locally, maybe we're just poorly funded. <laughs> they've kind of spoken about uh, you know, when they go and buy a puppy, and I guess this is different. You know, they're talking about like in the budget of kind of like two grand or something like that. And I can't, I can't imagine that you would get a trained dog for anywhere near that. I know people. I know people who who called me and said, "Well, you want us to to pre-train dogs, and we sell them to the police." And and, and as I said, they just get a big boner for just selling dogs to the police. And I I told him, "Well, that sounds interesting. I would love to do some training with those dogs." And but what's in for me because I have to make a living from something? Yeah, ten percent or blah blah of the price we sell the dog for. And then I asked him, "Well." How long do you want me to train a dog for? Yeah, maybe three or four months. And okay, so I, I counted and, and I made him an offer and he said, well, that's more than we sell the dog for. <laughs> you know, that makes just no sense for me then. Um, having a, a, full, a, a, a so-called fully trained dog, whatever that would be for 3,000 euros or something is just not realistic. And makes yeah, no sense. Yeah, that's why I... I... I guess some police forces must just have a lot more funding. It depends on the country. It depends on the unit. So if it's a soft unit, of course, they have more budget. budget. Um, but also, which is very interesting, that um, yeah, they, they start to rethink um, how big is the outwash of the dogs that we buy um, for less money. How much time and money do we waste with, with dogs that were cheap? but just rubbish. So they start to spend more money for for better dogs. And I think that that will be the future. And that's where um, you can call us for <laughs> to get high quality dogs. We don't produce a lot, but it's uh, if we sell, it's high quality. When you do produce a dog, um how does that process work do they kind of tell you what they want the dog to be able to do and then you train it or how, how does that work no actually the dogs that we and as i said this is a very small side business this is like selling sand wheels and like not like sand wheels and lineups but it's a small part of our business the biggest part is training others but um those dogs that we have sold have always been just project dogs for ourselves so we got this dog just to to train him detection, bite work, directional tracking, whatever. Um, and then having a more or less trained dog and saying, well, right now we know the dog is healthy because we did the medical examination. And that's the level that the dog has who is interested. So we sell the dog to get a new one for us to, to just get better in training dogs. 
and and okay, so the one that you've you've sold hasn't been um, hasn't been asked put on to any particular scent or anything like that. Um, sometimes yes, sometimes no. So we have dogs that we sold that were trained for detection, and they were on a specific training odor. So we sold this dog. Then we, if if we're talking about explosives, we don't use a training order. We we use the the, the real target scents um, only. And for example, I had one pre-trained detection dog, but the police said uh, we are looking for a search and rescue dog. So would this dog fit our uh, or the skill set? And we tested the dog. We gave them the dog for two or three weeks, and they say, well, he's fitting in perfectly. So. They bought a detection dog or a search and rescue dog that was trained for detection. So I'm totally fine with that. And yeah. and as we said, we're quite privileged right here because we don't have to sell dogs. We can, and and we don't have to if we don't want to. And if there is someone who is interested in our dogs, and we we're having a dog um, in production, <laughs> to say it like this, then we can talk about it. Yeah, uh, I imagine that it takes up so much of your time to actually train a dog to do all this stuff. Um, and even before that, when you're finding breeders and, and testing puppies and, and all of that kind of stuff, you don't have to tell us what, what it is that you charge flow. But what is the kind of like, what's the average, like, what kind of range are we talking about if someone was to go and buy a, buy a trained dog? It's such a big spectrum because depending on the skill set that the dog should be able to show. If it's a, is it a single purpose detection dog on target odor or not, is it a dual purpose patrol dog with target odor or not, um, with outing or not, blah, blah, blah. Um, will it be used for special operations? So you have outsourced a, a totally silent dog who is not whining around and when in expectancy to bite. Um, Etc. So, uh, I would say the range would be somewhere between four thousand to to fifteen thousand, probably. Right, right. That's actually less than I expected because mm. uh, because of the amount of time investment. Yeah, but it, it, and obviously it, getting the getting the puppy it, itself it never counts off. So if you have a look on the service or assistance dogs, well, <laughs> where you can buy dogs for. 30 grand or 40 grand, which is just ridiculous. And um, sometimes, not all, not all the times, of course. So we are also uh, in a project right now training or helping to find dogs that shall be trained for uh, as PTBS dogs for Ukrainian veterans uh, with an American funding. Very interesting topic. And these dogs are quite expensive and people are willing to pay this amount. But sometimes I'm just asking myself, hmm, the effort that we put into a police or, yeah, whatever, is not less. But those units are not willing to pay more or they, they would like to pay us more, but they just don't get the funding. Because the funding is comes from the governments and the funding for mm -hmm. assistance stocks, for example, is coming from the private sector, from wealthy people. Um, who just want to do something good, you know. So there, more money can be generated for for dogs, which is yeah crazy. Uh, I rem I think I heard you say, Flo, that um, 
you i could i'm getting these numbers wrong but i'm just i'm hoping that this is going to spark you're going to know what i'm talking about um something about doing like i think you said 520 hours of training with a dog or maybe it was that doesn't ring a bell today not today not to, no you didn't say it today i heard you on another podcast i think it was the one with cameron ford and you were saying that uh your instructors go through a certain amount of training like and it was a is a big number and you had an hour amount i'm, I'm pretty sure maybe i'm wrong maybe i could be thinking but, of something um, else no there are many holes in my Just because memory the amount of training that goes into to a dog if you broke that down mm. per hour you know how much you're being paid per hour is uh yeah, that's I. I think that's why I thought it would be be quite high. No, but I I thought, um. So, if we sell the dog to police for a less amount of money than that, then we would like to have, or that would make sense if you really calculate it. Um. Uh, now, now I started the sentence in the wrong wrong um, manner. But the thing I want to say is that selling dogs is not a good business for us, but the business that we make from it is that we learn with every dog that we train. So the, the two labs that I've sold recently or last year and this year, and our two Labrador retrievers from um, hunting lines, they're gun dogs, but they were totally different. Not just that one was a female and one was a male. And the female was like a bonsai Labrador, totally tiny. I, I sold her with not even 20 kilos and was speedy and the male was more relaxed she was less prey active he was a lot more prey active and so on so we we just learned so much from these dogs and then it makes sense to have this dog with you for maybe half a year spend a lot of time in the training because in the end a well-trained dog will be good marketing for me afterwards and still selling him for less than i would like him to sell for but um in the end, the benefit is is quite big. Yeah, no, it's just something I was interested in because it's not something that uh, you're privy you you are privy to unless you uh, you're inside of the industry. You know, it's not something that you hear about or, or know much about. So I was curious about that. And talking money is never uh, easy somehow, but um, but you you find these numbers also when you Google it. So. Well, that's why I was the the bad student flow. I asked all the questions you weren't supposed to ask. <laughs> I wanted to ask, because I'm a fan of your podcast, I wanted to ask you some of the questions that you ask guests frequently. Because I figure if you're asking the questions, that must be something that you have thought about or is important to you. So... It's funny because um, I ask those questions and I see my, my interview partner thinking and, I, and I'm and i thinking, I don't want to be asked that question. I would have no answer. <laughs> so, well, this is the we time. This is the time. We'll so, this is the revenge of your guests. Uh, so, Flo, what, what is your morning routine like? You know, do you have... Do you have a morning routine? Yes. I, actually, I do have... I, I became a lot more sloppy, but... I try to get up before 5 a.m. and I I have a big cup of coffee and and read for an hour. So this is what I do. I because I don't find any other time during the day to read, so I do it in the very early morning. And actually, I was 
last year I did a session of, of uh, Instagram stories where I always w woke up at 4.30 for a few months. And then I got sick and didn't continue. But I actually I got corona. But um, still I get up before 5 a.m. and leave the dogs in the garden. I let the dogs go in the garden and then read for an hour. What do you read? Do you, do you read non-fiction or fiction or, or what do you tend to read? Uh, everything that interests me. So my next book that I have prepared, actually this is a spoiler, is Mind in the Making, which Pat Nolan uh, recommended in our interview. Fantastic. And the one I'm reading right now is uh, Meditations of uh, some Roman guy, ancient Roman guy. Marcus Aurelius? Mm, probably. Yeah, could be. Okay, could be. And before that, I I read something that I didn't really like. Of course, I like to read um, very nerdy, uh, nothing here, very nerdy books about dog training or, or behavioral science. I'm really into that. Um, so this is what I read. From your questions as well that you tend to ask, it sounds like you're someone that, maybe is quite interested in nutrition and i'm talking about human nutrition here although maybe you're interested in dog nutrition as well um is that something that you consider a lot is that something that you you you're quite considered of uh what i think is very interesting is people working with animals and if they eat meat so i think that's actually i'm 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 a meat eater hundred percent. I eat way too much, and um, I I try to to source more the or to source out the source where I get the meat from, for example, and not just to buy everything that you find in the supermarket, not knowing if it was shipped from Spain to be slaughtered in 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 Holland and then to be sliced in Germany and being sold in Austria or something like this. So I I try to have a look at the, at the quality, and I'm interested in. In, in my interview partners, how they see those things. And some of them were vegetarians, some were vegans, some are hunters. So actually I have a, a hunter's degree for years, but I've never been hunting, um, not yet. But meanwhile, I have everything I need <laughs> to, to get some food <laughs> on the table. Um, okay. So that's what's what interests me, and and also, yeah, is it because being being a dog trainer can be very stressful, as you know, having long days, being outside, being a lot on the road. So what do you eat while being on the road? It's always McDonald's or or some sandwich from a gas station, and so I just try to figure out how how others how other colleagues and and idols are, are having how they treat their temples <laughs> okay fantastic and of course the most classic uh kino talk is it kino or kino 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 take kuno. Kuno. Oh, okay. yeah. kuno um the most classic question is if you were on a desert island what what kind of dog would you would you have i would bring a, a malinois as well um because my Malinois are very social uh, with me, um, if I would bring my, my pointer, I would be alone because he would be gone 
hunting. <laughs> <laughs> so there's no need of the pointer on the island. And um, also the Labradors would be a lot of fun, I'm, I'm sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm still trying to get a Cocos Spaniel to to see if they really are uh, if they really are how how others say they are oh they're amazing yeah yeah we should talk about that for sure yeah uh, we have a lot of incredible cocker spaniels in this country yeah I, I i know and um they will come where i will get one of those all right super well this has been really enjoyable flow thanks so much for coming on my podcast i, I really appreciate it thank you for asking me it was a pleasure and um, before you go, is there anywhere, where can people find you? Uh, where can, uh, you know, you mentioned all of these trainers courses you do, or maybe even someone might be interested in, in buying a dog. Um, where, where can they contact you? Well, you can contact us on our uh, website, which you have to spell because my English spelling is very bad. It's uh, at for Austria. Uh, you'll find us on Facebook with Kunotech. you find us on Instagram with Kunotech. <clears throat> Meanwhile, because of our marketing agency, you also find us on TikTok, um, unfortunately, <laughs> uh, on, on LinkedIn and even on, on Twitter, on YouTube. So basically everywhere we try to appear. Uh, and if you're interested in our, um, in our products, so we have the online progression plans in English and German and also on-demand webinars in English and, of course, the workshops we do in English and German as well. All right, fantastic. Thanks, Flo. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to meet you. I hope you enjoyed that podcast with Flo Schneider. I really appreciate you listening, and I think you should check out his podcast as well, which I'm pretty sure I was pronouncing wrong. I always pronounce it Kino Talk, but actually I think that might be wrong. It's K-Y-N-O Talk. Uh, so you can search on the podcast apps and, f- and find Flo's podcast. It's definitely one that I've I've been enjoying for a long time. He's got some fantastic episodes with some really interesting guests. And before you go, I just want to tell you, I've got a webinar coming up. And this is really your last opportunity to get signed up for it. It's uh, it's it's about to go live. It's, it goes on up on August the 9th is when we're going to be doing it. Um, there will be recordings available uh, for those that have signed up, but you won't be able to buy a recording afterwards. Uh, the topic is puppy selection and training. I'm going to be sharing my experiences and what I've been going through with Onyx, but also the experience of just being a pet dog trainer for a very long time, seeing all of the mistakes being made and trying to help you navigate that world and make sure that you don't make them. So we'll be talking about where to get your dog from, but also all of the kind of basic uh, puppy training, how to make sure that you avoid common mistakes. So I hope you can join me for that. And thanks for listening.